Hi, welcome to Glam City. I'm Chelsea Barnett. And I'm Anna Clark. And on Glam City, we go behind the scenes. We speak to the hardworking people working in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. And we're back. We're back, Ooh-hoo. baby, for yeah. a fourth season, um, which is so exciting. We're four seasons back old. Back by popular demand. Well, indeed. I think that's incredible. <laughs> On this episode of Glam City, we're discussing scientific photography at the Australian Museum with our guest, Vanessa Finney, who is the author of this gorgeous, gorgeous book in front of us, uh, Capturing Nature, Early Scientific Photography at the Australian Museum, 1857 to 1893. Hi, Vanessa. Hello. Hello. So you manage Australia's oldest and largest natural history archives, which is just the coolest thing I can imagine. Um, so <laughs> you can are you, a history nerd, Jill. Yeah. <laughs> can you take us through a day um, in your life, I suppose, at the museum? Okay, so I manage the archives at the museum, but I also manage the rare books and the library collection. Oh. So I have a hugely varied job wow. across original materials and um, published materials. So we do a lot of um, internal and external reference. We prepare exhibitions. Sometimes we get the chance to write a book, which is amazing and rare, but special. Um, we do lots of um, promotional activities wherever we can. Oh, that's so exciting. I have lots of questions. First of all, I'm going to ask, how did you get to where you are? How did you become an archivist? I actually began my career wanting to be an academic and I got halfway through a PhD before um, life events derailed it. And I took a few years off to have a family and then I was looking for something to do. And I thought that maybe I wanted to be a librarian. And I don't think actually I really knew what archivists did. But when I discovered what archivists did, it's like, that's what I want to do. So I became an archivist um, as a second career. And in terms of um, getting to the museum, was it actually the the, the process of being an archivist that you wanted to do? Or is there something in particular about the museum and its collections? And I guess it's, you know, is being an archivist transportable? You can do it with any collection. Or is there something really special about the museum in particular that has kept you there? Um, oh, definitely. The museum is a really special place and it has a very, um, it has a large and very, very, very interesting archive. So not every archive can keep you interested for your whole career, but this one certainly can. Why is that? What's, what's in it? Well, it's both old. So the um, first documents come from the 1830s and it's continuous since we've been on the same site since the 1850s. So it's incredibly rich and it has so many byways and highways. Um, So we have um, the administrative records, but we also have donated and collected material. We have a huge photography archive, which um, is my particular interest, Um, big illustration collection. So it has, it's got the museum's core history, but it has all these other personalities and events and moments in Australian science history that are there to be explored. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that collection of photography um, that you work with so closely? When was it first introduced into the museum's practices? Um, So the first date in the exhibition is 1857 and that's because that's the first mention of photography in the minutes but really it didn't get started till about 1860. It's very early. It is very early, yeah. I think of photographs being around the turn of the sort of mm. 20th century. Well, so photography had been invented in 1838 but really didn't become a mass medium until the late 1850s. Um, And scientists were some of the people who immediately saw that this was a really useful tool. Mm. And so the um, curator at the Australian Museum called Jared Kreft arrived in 1860 and he brought a camera with him. 
And he was a photographer himself? He wasn't a photographer. He was really a um, field collector and a natural historian who had used illustration in the past, but once he saw a camera, he knew that this could be a shortcut. Mm. And when it was sort of first associated with the museum in terms of documenting the life and world around us, do you think those uh, curators uh, or the uh, the people at the museum realised that it would be so popular or was it really sort of developed as an internal process for the museum's own working or did, did they have a sense of the potential audience for this medium? No, uh, I think they they didn't see that it was a mass medium. I think they saw it as a very useful tool for their own work mm. both within the museum and to circulate images to their colleagues around the world but I don't think they ever imagined that we would put it on a show like this because uh, this is also an exhibition, this book, which is on at the Australian Museum at the moment, so that we would, you would exhibit these mm. as imagery. Because mm. they tell us so much, don't they? They do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so they are scientific objects, but obviously they're also beautiful. Mm. Let's talk about the medium of photography, which is, um, you know, you're sa- it's a sort of an emergent scientific practice at the time, but it's also, as you say sort of um, documenting the process of the museum and these people how did that change over time and how did photography impact our own ability to memorialize and document these objects so I think they were doing um, two things so they were they were using them to document scientific objects so with a photograph you can see more detail than you can with the naked eye so you can see things that are smaller you can see things that are larger than you can see with the naked eye, but you can also um, capture a moment um, mm. between life and death. So a lot of these are specimens that have been freshly brought into the museum um, and they're documented before they die, before they're taxidermied, before they become museum objects. So it's really, for me, that's one of the really great things about this is to see those transitional moments between nature and the museum. Um, And I think within the museum, I mean, illustration continues today. So scientists use both. So whatever tool they can find, they'll use the most recent, the most up-to-date, the most useful tool. So photography and natural science illustrations continue into the present where we have a whole lot of new technologies that will do more amazing things than any of these older technologies can. But um, photography, I just think that There's a really nice contrast at the museum between the way, for example, the trustees looked at photography and the way the scientists looked at photography. So you can see in the trust minutes that the trustees were immediately suspicious of this new art form or this new tool. (laughs) They they didn't know why we would want it. Social media or something. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Something unknown and outside their control, basically. So they didn't know why you would want to do it and what you would do with the products. But if there were products, they wanted to control them. So they saw it as a one-one-one-one situation um, and they would have and control and keep these images. But on the side, the curators, of course, knew that the thing about photography is that it's reproducible so that you can create multiple images and you can send them to lots of people at the same time so that you can use it to communicate both um, ideas and your specimens around the world. So it's not containable in the way that um, perhaps the more conservative trustees wanted it to be. Did that influence 
both the ways that, you know, if it's being sent around the world to perhaps other scientists and museums, did that have an impact on how Australia was viewed internationally? But also the flip side being, did those photographs change the way Australians saw themselves um, because of, I guess, an increasing access to their own natural history? Well, as I said before, this was really kept within the museum, right. so it didn't become a... wasn't an audience thing yet. It wasn't an Australian audience that, that they were um, being made for, but it, it did have an impact overseas, but it also had an impact on the way Australians did science. So mm-hmm. if you have mm-hmm. a photo, you can keep the original specimen in your collection and send an image where previously you would have had to send the actual specimen. So it enabled the Australian Museum to really consolidate and grow its own collection and keep control of the um, work that was being done. What would have happened before? Was it being sent? So before that, you would have had to... um, There's a really nice example in the book, which is the Wellington Caves digs, which was a series of fossil digs at Wellington Caves in New South Wales. So the first dig was done in the 1830s um, on one of Mitchell's expeditions and those actual specimens were sent back to the British Museum. But Gerard Kreft wanted to um, revisit in the late 1860s and instead of sending the specimens back to Richard Owen at the British Museum, he sent photographs. Right. So it actually meant that um, those institutions were able to keep the holdings of of their own natural history in a sense for the first time yeah and it changes the colonial kind of relationship a little bit absolutely i mean it it allows them to become the authority with the authority collection held in the Mm. place where it was made Mm. can you tell us a little bit about people like gerard craft and henry barnes and how they fit into um the kind of the, the museum's kind of early history so Jared Kreft is probably the dominant figure in the museum's um, early history. A really um, interesting and sort of strange man. He was born in Germany in 1830, came to the museum via um, the Victorian goldfields and some um, natural history expeditions in Victoria, uh, arrived in the late 1850s and became a curator in 1864. Hugely ambitious, both for his own science and to put the museum on the international um, scientific map. Um, did a lot of um, field work, so made a lot of um, discoveries of for Western science, you know, the Australian freshwater cro- crocodile, the cassowary, the lungfish, among other things. So some iconic Australian species that he was the first person to um, name and discover. But also, you know, as we were saying, really keen that Australian science would be seen as an autonomous activity, not not a child of, of British imperial um, museums and networks, but standing equal. Mm. And did he understand photography as central to that process of, of um, kind of showcasing Australian science on the world stage? Or was that um, kind of coincidental or, a, or a, you know, one, one thing of many factors, if, if I can say that? Well, I think there's a series of lucky coincidences in here. And one of them is that Henry Barnes also arrived at the museum at the same time. And he was um, seems to have just been a practical genius who could turn his hand to any sort of museum art, so taxidermy, articulation and photography. Mm. Um, and together he and Kreft worked to perfect um, photography really largely by trial and error. Mm. 
Uh, Chelsea and I were talking about this before you before the interview, um, Vanessa, about the sort of really interesting, I suppose, moment that the museum represents here in terms of a colonial moment. And we've spoken with your colleague um, Nathan Sentence before about what. Um, this kind of Western knowledge and the, the the urge to name and understand and discover and explore um, as a, as a I suppose um, part of the colonial project and how the the importance of the museum in um, I guess understanding Australia for the colonists does photography play a part in that? Do you think? Well, again, I think it's probably you know, the physical museum collections that play the biggest part in that. So, um, yes, absolutely. Being able to name and know the things around you is a really important part of claiming um, land and territory and, you know, the colonial imaginary. The museum opened in, um, in College Street in 1857. So, for example, 10,000 people came to the museum in the first week that it was open. So, astoundingly popular. Like, the Sydney public wanted to know. They wanted mm. to see. They wanted to... Uh, find out about the natural world around them. That must be like a quarter of Sydney's population. It is a quarter population of Sydney's yeah, population. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, truly amazing. Um, also, to think of them squeezing into that tiny space. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a, a popular appetite for this knowledge as well as a kind of a, a, a sort of government or official appetite. Absolutely. So in, you'll see it in the newspapers of the day, constant um, mentions of natural history finds. Um, Jared Kreft ran a column in the newspaper talking about natural history, um, aspects of natural history. And yes, and, and then I think it became a um, national project. Mm. So science and scientific identity and natural history is really becoming central to the way that Australians are understanding understanding themselves and their environment um, in this kind of late 1800s, mid to late 1800s. But I don't think it's new. I think it's a, a development of earlier um, modes of natural history. So natural history had been important since Cook's voyages. So, you know, they collected and they described and they took back and they published and illustrated their finds. And the natural history trade between um, Europe and Australia had been well established by the 1850s. But I think this is a different move to make it Australian. Mm. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support from 2SER. We're talking today with Vanessa Finney, who's manager at the Australian Museum of Archives, Rare Books and Library Collections. And we're speaking in particular about a current exhibition and book, which is also published, called Capturing Nature, Early Scientific Photography at the Australian Museum, 1857 to 1893. Um, Venice, looking through this book, which we have open in front of us and we have been poring over now, um, all this morning basically, the, the images are just kind of revelatory both in as you're saying before not not only for the sort of natural history that they document the size of the animals the sort of um i guess you know um but also the moment in time that they capture the foreignness the sort of marveling of an australian natural history and and the bounty what prompted you to i guess produce this exhibition and um and bring these works together well, I guess the, the thing that 
makes it an exhibition is that these um, these photos are beautiful. They're mm. strange and they're intriguing, but they are also really beautiful to look at. So in the exhibition, we've blown them up so that they're really much larger than life. Um, and because of the quality of the glass plates that they were made from, the detail is extraordinary. So the thing that the thing that makes it an exhibition is the quality of the imagery. But of course, behind every image, there's an amazing story. So not just about the specimens and the way they were collected um, and the people who did that, but the way they were prepared for photography. So um, there's quite a bit in the book about taxidermy and articulation because I think that they really it's really important to talk about the... Um, the practical men of science who made all this possible. Um, but then there's all this interesting stuff about the process of photography and how science and photography grew up together. But there's lots of also, um, for the real museum buff, there's lots of interesting detail about museum practice and museum buildings and, you know, you can actually see the faces of the people that mm. you've heard about. Mm. Are you able to talk a little bit more about science and photography growing up together, which is just a lovely phrase, but how this kind of emerging technology or this flourishing technology in the, the kind of 1850s shaped science at the time and how science also shaped photography? So um, the discipline of science and the tool of photography were forming at the same time. Mm. So there's a really nice um, crossover in the way that, not just the way that scientists use photography as a tool, but also the, the style of photographs that they were taking. So I think that these are also really unusual for the um, they're portraits of animals in the way that you might make a portrait of a person. This is a portrait of an animal and the animal as a single object hero which I think is um, really interesting and new, especially in Australian photography. Was there a, I suppose, a distance or a, or a gap stylistically between um, or a difference between uh, scientific photography and the, and the drawings that had um, preceded them? I, I think that there's a real continuity there. So the okay. importance of a scientific drawing is to show the animal as it is strip all the background out, all we're interested in is this particular specimen. And I think that the way these photos are taken with a white sheet backdrop, very um, a similar style to a lot of the photos, that it's the same sort of effort to replicate that, mm. you know, scientific approach to one, animals. One of the lovely, um, I guess, things that come through in this book is because it's not, um, they because they're not illustrations where they're completely sort of curated by the artist but it's capturing a moment in time and some of the accidents of those moments are really sort of lovely like there's a great photo of a dolphin and a sheet behind it um, which is moving um, so you get a sense of how these are constructed you get a sense of the method of how some of these photos are made rather than just looking at a you know a watercolor or something on a paper which seems to be authorless in a yes. sense yeah oh absolutely so these are, are capturing you know they're capturing nature but they're also capturing time as and well work, the museum work and in museum a sense. work and they and there's a really lovely photo where not only can you see the sheet moving but you can see some boots, boots. sticking out from underneath yeah. and i'm looking at one now which is just one of the best photos i've ever seen in my life mm -hmm. i'm just going to ruffle some pages so you can get a sense that i am actually looking at this um it's a sunfish being hoisted Huge. like what is it sort of two meters at least mm -hmm. um being hoisted up um a um up the wall of the museum maybe to be deposited into the museum like it's an oh, i love that photo that's the so story incongruous the story of the sunfish <laughs> is amazing because a thing that big could be found in sydney harbour 
which yeah. in itself is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing, isn't yeah. it? That, um, so the man who ran a sawmill at Darling Harbour found that on the mud flats, uh, hoisted it up and immediately understood that it was something weird, sent it to the museum. And it was prepared for um, display at the museum, but the door wasn't big enough. So they had to hoist <laughs> it up and take it in through a big window on the second floor. It's a fabulous story. It is, yeah. And it's a fabulous photo. Yes. Are there other favourites of yours in the collection? Oh, I have lots of favourites. But I just want to go back to what you were saying before too because not only do you see the people and the, you can see the, the moment of time in these photos, but you can actually see the practice of photography as well. So they, they got better, clearly, as they, um, as they took more photos and developed more photos. But there are lots of accidents in this um, series of photos too. So you get scratches and you've got bubbles where the chemicals didn't quite mix properly or where the emulsion started to peel off and that's one of the beautiful things about you can really see that this is um you know time specific but also um an imperfect art Mm. there's also uh, as well as that there's this sense of incredible proliferation of natural life in and around Sydney that's Mm. obviously kind of literally washing up on the beaches Mm. um, and a thirst to understand what that is and to quickly classify it and to put it in its you know genus and etc. So one of the things we were talking about before is the number of fish that specimens that you'll see in this collection and the I'm guessing incredible proliferation of fish life in Sydney Harbour and surrounds that you could get a fish to the museum fresh enough to take one of these yeah. photos. Mm-hmm. Um, Which probably doesn't have happen by about 1900. You know, yeah, it's absolutely. It's already sort of fished out. Yeah, and fact. one of my favourite photos is um, it's the hero image at the beginning of the exhibition. It's one of the um, carpenters standing with the flipper of a um, humpback whale and it was actually found at Little Bay and you see this photo and you see the man and this giant giant flipper that completely dwarfs him and to think of that um, washing up on a Sydney beach is just incredible. Mm. We, we also spoke before about the fact that you couldn't include all the fish photos <laughs> much to Anna's dismay <laughs> um, Boycott. In, the, in the exhibition and so you know it's, it's not really that surprising to say that an exhibition is made not only by what you include but what, but what you leave out. How, where did you draw that line or how did you make those decisions? Well, we could do another book on fish, but there were hundreds, <laughs> <laughs> hundreds of photos of fish. So for the fishy of fish aficionado, mm. there's another book, but um, for the rest of us, we really wanted to show the variety of um, animals that were coming into the museum and also of course emphasize uh, the people who were doing this so any photo with a person in got into the exhibition because there aren't that many and they're really quite special okay it, it also makes me think um you know how as you were saying how, how close people were in a way to the natural world you know sydney is a city by then it has forty thousand people but fish are washing up on the beaches presumably people are going off and finding not just sea animals but all sorts of things in the in the world around us does that happen anymore in Sydney or Australia? Like how much stuff now can get donated? Do we know everything or nearly everything or is it still going? Are people still donating? So the museum currently has over 20 million objects. So people are still donating. We are still collecting. Wow. We don't know everything. No. Wow. That's a collection. <laughs> Glam City. Your backstage pass into Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums.
do these early photographs from the collection inform the ongoing exhibitions at the museum? Oh, of course, I really hope so. So one of my ambitions, professional ambitions, of course, is to promote the archives and the centrality of archives to institutions like museums. So specimens don't appear um, naturally. They are made and they're collected and they're looked after and we need to um, pay more attention to the history of these objects, the history of the way they came into the museum and the way they've been used once they are in the museum. So I hope that um, when people come to an exhibition like this or have a look at the book, they also understand that um, museum history is really important for the museum but it's really important outside the museum too to think about photos for example like these beautiful photos that are stunning in themselves but also uh, tell you important stories about um, people and the museum in general. Yeah that's a really nice idea. Um, when I mentioned Nathan's work in terms of you know changing the idea of um, author unknown to made by ancestor you know there's a there, these these knowledges change over time and it's really as you say it's really important to document how that changes over time it's not valueless absolutely yeah. and just to expand the boundaries of what the museum is little bit by little bit that this museum you can see because it's in a series of colonial buildings that it has a colonial history but actually to animate that history and talk about the way things were done as mm. well and get really specific about some of the practices and how those layers of interpretation change over time it's yeah really so these so these photos you know sitting in the archives waiting to be, you know, reconsidered. Mm. Lovely note to end on. Um, and it brings us to our final segment of the show, the Glam Slam segment, where we go through, unravel our own diaries about what's coming up um, in our glam, in the glam sector in the coming weeks and months. Vanessa, what are you going to poke your eyes into? Oh, well, I am very excited because there's an official ceremony to recognise that our Scott Sisters Lepidoptery Collection is being inscribed on the UNESCO Memory of the World so this is um, another one of the jewels of the Australian Museum Archives collections, a collection of stunning natural history illustrations done in the 1850s, um, butterflies and moths, um, and also... Um, no fish. <laughs> no fish. <laughs> and it's <laughs> A series of uh, manuscripts and notebooks that go behind this that really describe a um, one of the most complete archives of female participation in 19th century science um, as well as a really superbly stunning artwork collection and it's going to be inscribed as one of the items on the Australian Memory of the World. So it's a huge honour. And is that very exciting? accessible? Will there be an exhibition or anything? Well, there's a book. Oh, great. Yes. Ah, fantastic. That brings up so many ideas about gender and science (laughs) and knowledge. Yeah. My mind's going crazy. That's fantastic. So that's um, a book that I wrote last year called Transformations and it's about Harriet and Helena Scott. I'll make sure to check that one out. Um, I am heading off to the Museum of Sydney um, to look at photographs but to look at street photography, the street photography exhibition um, for a kind of series of photographs, commercial street photography that were taken between the 30s and the 50s and we might class it as an original kind of street style um, for those fashionistas out there. So that's what I'm going to check out. Mm. And I am going to run right down as soon as I put these, take these headphones off to go look at the capturing nature 
um, exhibition. Um, and of course, at the exhibition, you can also grab a copy of this incredible book by the same name, Capturing Nature, Early Scientific Photography at the Australian Museum, 1857 to 1893. It's published by New South Books. It's just an absolute it ripper. It is beautiful. The phot- photographs are extraordinary. I'm, I'm going to go to the State Library of New South Wales galleries. They've got an exhibition um, on called Sid- um, Sydney Elders, which is a sort of oral history and artistic um, exhibition about some of the um, elders, uh, Aboriginal elders around Sydney that I'm going to go and look at as well. So lots so on. So much going on. Yeah. That brings us to the close of Glam City for today. Thank you so much to Vanessa for joining us from the Australian Museum here in the studio. If you'd like to hear more for us, head to the 2SER website. That's 2SER.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. And don't forget to hit us up on Twitter. You'll find me under at Anna Hope Clark. And and I'm at Chelsea M. Barnett. And the museum is at Australian Museum. There you go. That's easy to remember. So have a look. We'll tweet yes. the heck out of it. Tweet, tweet, uh, tweet. <laughs> this podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. And if you want to get in touch, don't forget to email us, glamcity at 2SER.com. Thank you again so much, Vanessa Finney, for joining us today and being our guest. Thank you. Glam out. Glam out. <laughs>